Players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Mox Diamond, Dark Confidant, Garouk Relentless, and many others. Battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bosch and Raw on YouTube, Thurban University, and TheEpicStorm.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 58 of the Eternal Glory Podcast prismatic bending i'm phil gallagher joined as always by bryant cook and brian Cole. how are you all doing tonight just delightful phil so happy to be looking at your brand new haircut through discord yeah i know i'm looking fly i kind of go feast or famine with my haircuts and it's famine time yeah i see that i'm doing the opposite thing this is the longest my hair has been in literal years like it's it's approaching the uh the eyebrow if i really like push it straight down if you if you keep it going, you could develop an emo phase. Uh, Phil, I graduated from high school in 2006. You know I already had an emo phase. <laughs> My Chemical Romance was at the height of their powers. Warp Tour was still going strong. It was never cooler to be uh, it punk scene adjacent. And then I was in the actual punk scene as well. So it, I had a deep emo phase and I'm still in my my punk phase. I was going to say, why do you assume that the emo phase is over? <laughs> yeah, honestly, That's as, as an adult, like I got into that sort of uh, teenager mindset of like, it's not cool. That's fake. Hot Topic's fake. Blink-182 is fake. Like I got into that for like a number of years. Like if anyone's ever heard of this band, it's not real punk. Like I was in that circle for a while. And now as an adult, I'm like, oh, no, Newfound Glory fucking rules. <laughs> and I just embrace all of it entirely. So. I might be more emo than ever right now. Less actual emo, more into emo music. I like how so we the just went right off the rails. <laughs> what rails? People know what they're here for. They're here for, to talk about our new haircuts. Yeah, it's 20 to 30 minutes of bullshit. And then we remember that we are a magic podcast and we talk about that for an hour and a half. Speaking of absolute bullshit, uh, I purchased some cards that were probably too expensive for me to purchase, and then I felt guilty about it. And I was like, you know what? I should open up those binders that don't have storm cards in them, sell some cards out of those binders, because I never use them anyway, and it will be just easy peasy. I forgot how much selling cards sucks. People you deal with in the selling groups are just miserable people to deal with in general. Like, you'll post a $40 card, and they're like, well, there's an MP1 that's bent in half on TCG Player for $27. Would you do 22 It's like, no, my card is mint. <laughs> Fuck off. Like, I don't, I'm not dealing with this. Yeah. Selling card sucks is literally Mark Nestico's Twitter handle, and that's his job. You, you beat me to that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I'm friends with a, a number of vendors, which I'm sure we all are. If you spend time in the magic circles, you get to know them, and the stories are just preposterous like the the requests people get it's like these are my prices they're firm they're already 15 percent below tcg low and people are like will you knock off a hundred dollars if i buy two things that total to three hundred dollars it's like what the no get out of here or can i get more picks of that 
it's like there's there's four pictures up already what else are, do you want to see like show me your bank statement and then i'll get you more pictures <laughs> yeah i have uh reached the phase of my life where cards only come in they don't go out if i do end up with judge foils or some random shit i just really don't care about they get sold on twitter and <laughs> my twitter feed my rules these are the prices they can go for the most part, I don't sell cards. I'm very similar, but like the cards that I purchased were, I, I bought four Japanese foil signed pack negations from future site and oh. they're pretty expensive. Um, and I just felt really guilty about it. Like I have enough money to cover them, but I'm like, do I want that much money leaving my bank account? So I was like, you know what? I have a set of foil stifles, for example, those are just under a thousand dollars. I'm like, why do I own these? Let's just sell those. But th that's the type of crap I'm dealing with. Fair enough. I'm just smouging up everything. I've made some upgrades to my Corvold EDH deck. I had a, a couple not quite the max awesome cards. Uh, like my Pernicious Deed was whatever master set it came out in rather than Apocalypse. I bought an Apocalypse one. My I, These are all foil, by the way. I had a, a, a set foil Yawgmoth, but I wanted the time shifted one from Time Spiral remastered with the old border. So I fired off on a couple of those and I had the brief thought of, like, I could sell this other foil Yawgmoth, or I could just put it in my binder forever. And that's where it is. Pernicious Deed is just, like, it's one of those cards that, to me, is, like, just one of the most beautiful foils. As a kid, I loved Pernicious Deed. All my decks were built around it for a couple of years. Like, River Boas and uh, Spectral Links, <laughs> Spearmongers. Gold cards from the Invasion block are the best foils that there have ever been, and it's not even close, like... Pernicious Deed, Vindicate, Spiritmonger, Meddling Mage, like, wow. That's like a series of bangers out of that that block. And it led right up into 7th edition, which in my opinion are the, just the best foils, hands down, like, not even close. Yeah, 7th edition, I think, is my least favorite aesthetic of any magic set, but the <gasps> foils are just 11 out of 10. Yeah. I, I don't like it. They just, like, fired all magic artists for one set, gave all art to different people, they drew everything just randomly. I, and it's got its own feel, which I appreciate. But And in foil, it does look super hot because it's so different. But it's just completely different than everything. And I don't think it's in a good way, which might be the white border's fault that I feel that way about the overall aesthetic. But foils don't have those. So, yeah, I'm in. So uh, to go off topic for a second and do a what little topic? bit of our life. I don't know. Non-magic. Uh, so a little bit of life updates. I don't, I'm not, I don't know about you guys, but like, I am not a fan of professional wrestling. Like I watched it as a kid and then I turned nine and just like quit watching or whatever. But I've started watching the show heels that has Stephen Amell, the lead of arrow in it. And then Bjorn Ironside from, uh, Vikings. They play brothers and they do like backyard wrestling. I have never been more hooked on. Like I love Ted Lasso. I look forward to heels every single week more than I do Ted Lasso. Like, I cannot wait for a new episode to go up. I'm opening up my notepad in my phone where I keep the things I need to watch and adding heels. I Thank never you. heard of it, but it sounds amazing. Have you have either of you watched that Squid Game show? Yep. I pounded that watching? out in like two nights. Okay, so that's a yes. And you watch anime, so you'll like it. it. It's, I mean, it's bloody. But if you are into that, like, Battle Royale, Hunger Games. Uh, oh, say no more, fam. Yeah, I'm there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It, it's in that, that vein. All right, so Brian, uh, you posted something to Twitter that I saw, some pretty big news that you've uh, talked about the last few weeks. What happened? Yeah, I got a new job. I think I mentioned last 
two weeks ago, I would have just put in my notice that I was leaving. Well, it's two weeks later and I'm out. It's currently, I just finished day two of orientation, which is happening in my laptop in my home. And it's just like unlocked all of the things that I knew weren't being done in my previous job. Like you get a lot when you're on a school schedule, like steady 7.30 to 3.30. You always have your nights, always have your weekends. Like, but you never have a day. Like you, there will never be time during the day to do anything. And the last 10 years that I worked in schools, I'd be like driving to work. It's 7.15 and I'd see someone like, just leaving their house stretching about to start a jog and i'm like you probably think you're up early don't you you have time to jog before you shower and go to work at 9 a.m i'm on the way to work now i will clock in in the next five minutes and you're just starting your jog aren't you special which is obviously like a savage way to feel but <laughs> when you're driving to work at 7:15 and you've been up for an hour and a half already uh i'm not in my best mind state but today i woke up at 7:30. And just casually got myself out of bed, got put some clothes on, walked to the park down the street, shot hoops at like eight o'clock in the morning. I walked past school buses, picking up kids at the bus stop, like people driving to work. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm playing basketball right now. It feels pretty good. Thanks for asking. And like that's that is a lifestyle that I'm into. And I did my orientation thing today and then just fired off uh, recording a league midday. So uh the plan to back off day job hours and embrace content creation hours as like part of my actual weekly job is is working out well so far. That's super dope. I'm I'm so excited for you as someone who has the teacher schedule and knows exactly what that pain is like. Yep, I did it for 10 years. I loved almost all of it and uh, just the change of scenery is welcome. The weirdest thing like on the last day, like when you leave a job you've had for 10 years, uh, there's certainly going to be various feelings, mixed feelings. The hardest part was turning in my badge, like my ID badge. Uh, like that's just this little ephemeral object that I've been responsible for for the last 10 years. Like I can't go to work without it. I need to know where it is. We have key card access. So I had to like swipe my way through the building throughout the day. Like I've interacted with this object probably as much as any other object in my life, any other individual object, except maybe like my childhood teddy bear, which is like, I didn't think of any of that until I was turning it in on my way out of work. And I was like, wow, why do I not want to give this to you? Can I keep it? But obviously I can't because it's an ID for a school with this with like swipe access. So got to give it up. But that was a weird, I was not expecting to feel that about my ID badge. What I would like to know is, what is your free throw percentage? So like, how often do you brick when you're going to the park shooting hoops? I am extremely rusty. There was a golden era, probably about five years ago, where myself, Steve Rubin, Stu Summers, we had a like magic player. We all lived in the same neighborhood, and there was a park in between all our houses, and we had like a magic player weekly game and then we'd shoot around in between the weekly games i was also going to a pickup game once a week after work with some colleagues and like i i was running pretty hot at that time i today was probably the first time i've shot a basketball in two years and it wasn't bad i'm not gonna lie uh it's not quite like riding a bike but i i was making some shots percentage wise though probably 50 50 <laughs> if we're really being honest i mean honestly after that long that's pretty darn good Yep. I made sure to start the day on a really easy layup. 
Like I, I'm still tall. I didn't lose that. So just went in for a nice easy layup. Didn't start at the foul line. Like just first shot in two years goes in the hoop. Now we're now we can brick a few. How about you, Phil? What have you been up to? Um. So normally for the past couple of years, like magic has been the thing that has constantly been in the back of my head, like during the workday. And now it's kind of become D&D is the thing that's in the back of my head during the workday. And like that session has now become the highlight of my week. So it, it feels like now like I'm doing work stuff at work. I come home, I do the magic stuff, which is like bonus round work, which is still pretty darn fun most of the time. And then in the evening, it's like, hmm, I wonder if I have time to watch a D&D video. I'm going to futz with these spells a little bit. Um, and I've gotten just, like, totally absorbed by this new hobby. And it's nice to have something to funnel energy into right now. That's good. Uh, I'll admit, I try to keep games that would compete with Magic at a distance because I don't want to have them get in the way. Like, I purposely don't do that sort of thing. Oh, Same. God, it's such a time suck. Like... I I love it, but it's like these are two competing hobbies, very very much so. Like they're both the sort of things like where you could absolutely just like throw yourself into the abyss of either. I mercifully didn't have the time to do that when I was playing D anD D. Like I just was recording all the time or going to work and had various meetings and stuff going on, and I didn't have time to like really kerjigger my spells in between sessions. Uh, like I I really did do the bare minimum, which I feel like was a missed opportunity, but at the same time was like probably net healthy for me. Uh, like if the GM was like, I need you guys to level up before next week, I would do that out of you know respect for the, the GM's time. But I, I was not like thinking about I was not studying a map and deciding what to advocate, like what path we take next week or anything midweek. So it's cool that you're sinking into that, but I'm the same as Bryant. Like, my friends all love board games, including heavy board games that it takes like three or four hours to play around, and you need to play ten rounds before you really understand what's going on and can start to develop strats. And I'm just like, nah, I have magic for that. Like, I want to play code names, or I want to learn the rules in five minutes and play the game in twenty, or else I'm out. Yeah. Uh, when I bought my, I, I I actually just sold it, but I bought a laptop to get into Magic Online. This was in 2016, and when I bought that laptop, I was like, "Oh shit, I can play Heroes of Might and Magic Three Complete, the game from my childhood." So I went to Good Old Games. I bought it for ten dollars. They gave me a download, and I probably played like four or five campaigns before I even installed Magic Online. And I was like, "Oh wow, I just lost a lot of time." And what happened is my wife would like be like, you've been in your office for like eight hours. Everything going well? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just playing this game. And like, I just lose track of time, which is obviously what they want when you're playing video games. But like, that's just not time well spent because like, what value do I gain to my wife out of playing Heroes of Might and joy. Magic or whatever? Joy, you gain joy. So I definitely was addicted to Diablo 2 in high school like definitely to an unhealthy degree that was what i funneled my obsession and energy into at that time and then they just released that diablo 2 remastered thing and all i want to do is play that because it would be the ultimate nostalgia trip but i just can't because i know where that road goes and i have like no ability to dedicate that amount of time to that and like maintain a healthy relationship and friend group and whatnot. 
I was at a dinner a couple of weeks ago with a group of friends, and one of them was talking about how he he's into WoW, and that's something that I specifically avoided, much like drugs and alcohol in my life, because I knew if I touched it, I'd be done. And the way he was talking about it, I made the right call. Like he was like, "Yeah, the new uh, the new patch or the new world, the new set. I, I don't know what they are called, but like the new thing rolls out on Monday." I've taken Monday and Tuesday off work. We have plans to convene at 1 a.m. The server should be ready by then, and we're just going to campaign. I ordered three pizzas. I just have them in the fridge so I don't have to leave the house or go far from my chair. And like, and he was saying all this like it was completely normal, like just like he was talking about like <laughs> going out of town, like his out of town itinerary. I was like, wow, that's sickening. I'm glad you're the, happy with your life, but I'm glad I dodged that It's the beginning of Zombieland, right? Jesse Eisenberg is like in his apartment drinking Code Red or whatever. It's the same thing. Right. It's that episode of South Park where. Yeah, just that's like, what I was just yeah. going to say. Yeah. That might be the best. One of the best episodes of anything that's ever been on TV. Like, like for me specifically, just the way they tapped into perfectly parodied that culture and the live like D&D or a wow cut scenes where they're actually like recording on wow like. That that was just a great episode of TV. All right. Shall we move into the next session? Otherwise, like, we're going to go down the South Park rabbit hole and start comparing which episodes are best. And that's a whole nother podcast. Yeah, let's not do that. All right. Um, so thank you very much to the people who donated to help support uh, the podcast. Um, so our donations from the last episode were from Daniel Becker, Henrik, Cor- Cor- uh, b- b- Henrik Korkutz, Brent Gilmore and Bill Schlichting. Thank you very much for supporting the podcast and letting us ramble on about legacy, vintage, and, you know, grilling and whatever else. My swim trunks were a hot topic last episode. Lots of comments. Excellent. <laughs> uh, and, and always our, uh, our, our donations end up going to for paying for the various podcast expenses, especially paying our good old editor at Force of Phil, who does great work for us. All right, so Phil, you had a, a landfall video pop off today. Um, I heard that you got wrecked by Bloss's Citadel in that video. How did that go? Damn it, Bryant. <laughs> All right, yeah. So I I played a straight-up zoo deck in the year of Karanos 2021, and it was fantastic. And not just like it was a fun league, but like the deck was surprisingly good, and I got many turn two and turn three kills. Uh, which I didn't expect, but it turns out now that uh, a Coem Hellhound exists, you actually have a pretty respectable density of landfall creatures, and with crop rotation and berserk, things get silly very quickly. Yeah, I believe you turn to me the game that you won. Yeah, I mean, you, you don't really get to interact with your opponent, so like, if you care about interacting, like, this deck isn't for you, um, but I, I played Amir, and I turn to my opponent, and then I went, okay, I have the turn three if I don't remove their creature. I'm going to play my creature and then try to turn three them. And my- Michael Mapson then turned to me with his deck. <laughs> uh, so it's a little crazy what the deck is capable of. So my side of the video also went live today, and in it I talk about how when I was a kid, and Brian might remember this, in early legacy, there was a zoo deck that was like actual zoo that just ran like giant growths and berserks. 
but didn't run Invigorate or anything like that. It actually just ran like Giant Growth Berserk as a way to finish off the opponent. And your deck has a lot of that field. Like mostly it's Berserk, but like the Giant Growths are just built into creatures nowadays. And it just felt very old school legacy to me. And I enjoyed that. Oh yeah, playing it was like super nostalgic. Um it it was very fun. Um I I think the deck needs some adjustments because like there's a random Urza saga in there that's just like, okay, come on. Like we don't need that as a crop rotation target. We're trying to kill our opponent on turn two or turn three. Like we don't we don't need to mess around with this. I get that the card's good. And there were a couple like cute things in the sideboard, like Gem Razor, where it's like, okay, just just play the good card. We we don't need to get that cute. Is that the creature it's that comes time. into play and removes all lands? No, no that's Realm Razor. Gem Razor's the mutate uh plus or four four trample uh trigon predator okay yeah plus like if you play that card you have to know how mutate works and it's basically impossible <laughs> well phil sure. have you considered realm razor because when it dies all your lands come back into play create landfall triggers huh huh i i got some wild suggestions in the comments for things that i could put in this deck let me tell you although i i do think that the youtube hive mind had a good one uh, in a salt strobe, I think that should probably be in the deck. But then there were a lot of suggestions for like, how about flagstones? It's like, no, no, we don't, we don't want a mono white colored source in this deck. Like, I get that it's cute with crop rotation, but I need to cast these spells every time on curve. Yeah, that that deck is called green white depths, and it's a different thing. All right, so Brian, I know you have just had an absolutely crazy string of videos in the past week or two here. Yeah, I don't know what's happening, uh, but it, it, it's it been hot. Um, in my last 11 videos, I think six of them spent time at number one. Uh, for those of you who have never released YouTube videos, which is probably most of you, YouTube tells you like of your last 10 releases, what what order they're ranked in at the current moment, like compared to each other. So like if I released my video four hours ago, it'll tell me where it ranks among my past 10 videos at the four hour point. So six of my last 11 were spent time at number one, like each one outperforming the other. And my last two probably or would have exceeded any normal performance if my Teferi Stasis video didn't just completely pop off to like near... Like, it's not quite in my top five, but it, it's easily in my top ten ever. And But my two I've released since then are definitely uh, outperform my average as well. So it's been hot, hot, hot. And it's the perfect time for that since I just quit my job to make YouTube more possible. So let's let's keep that going. Maybe the the magic gods or the, the universe or just the, the viewers get it. I did make a community post on YouTube that was like, hey, I, I quit my job. I'm doing something different now, so I have more time for this. Now's a good time to consider Patreon or YouTube membership. And people did answer the call, like probably like six or seven new patrons from that post, which I appreciate. It goes a long way. NPR is doing their uh, quarterly fun drive right now. Like every time I'm in the car, they're like, if you listen to this content every week, you need it to get stay informed. Consider paying for what you use. I'm like, damn, NPR knows. So I, I'm also on that NPR drive right now. And I got heaters still coming down the pipe. Uh, tomorrow is Wynota Stompy. Uh, Wynota Joiner of Forces, just whipping humans into play. And 
I five would with Splinter Twin today, like actual fucking Splinter Twin. So uh, they're they're just gonna keep coming for the next couple of days. They're they're good ones. That's awesome. People have really enjoyed the Winota videos that I've put out. Uh, the deck is inconsistent, but when it does its thing, it, it is so impressive and just disgusting. Yeah, I'm not gonna give any spoilers because that video will still be it'll be up, but pretty new when this comes out. But yeah, that that was certainly a magic deck. <laughs> I remember the last time you said something like that. <laughs> okay. I understand. Say no more. It was a lot better than curses. I'll say that. That's exactly what I had in mind. <laughs> yeah, it, it was not even comparable, not even close to comparable to my experience with curses where 05 and had no fun. But uh, the Winota deck was definitely like, if I draw actual Winota, we're going, going to town. And if I don't, we're dead. And that was frequently the situation. So question about your curses video, because I'll be honest, I'm not going to watch curses. Uh, did you 05010? I have a video that will be live by the time that this podcast is up where I went 05010. No, I'm sure I won the die roll against a non-blue deck at least once and stole a game. Fair enough. So uh, I've been on I've been on a little bit of a magic heater, not so much like video recording heater, but a while back, somebody made a comment about how I haven't done anything in a while, and it's just been like two and a half months of me, you know, top eating events or whatever. The last two weeks, uh, took second at a 2K paper playing the Epic Storm. TS has just continued to be great ever since we added White and Orange Chant and Prismatic Ending have just been giving TS a lot of life and beating matchups that it used to, you know, struggle with, like Deafening Silence or all that stuff. So, wow. If... Doomsday didn't exist. I think TS would be the best combo deck in the format. And then I've been tweaking Popper a lot. Honestly, I love Popper. It's probably my second favorite format. It's definitely like Legacy Light. And I've said this in a few like posts on the internet, but for people that don't like the current play patterns of Legacy, they would probably like Popper. You get to do a lot of the stuff that you did in Legacy like 10 years ago. So definitely check out Popper. But I took second in a Popper challenge playing like my own Cycle Storm Brew. Uh, like Cycle Storm has existed for some time, but I've like sort of revitalized the deck, did really well, and now that video's up on YouTube. So there's areas for doing what you want to do in Popper. I want to co-sign that point. I've said many times in public over the years that I think Popper is probably the best constructed format when it's well managed. I mean, they've they've had sort of a series of stupid printings and emergency bannings over the past six to twelve months. But the format, when it's healthy, it's all—it's the depths of decision-making and deck-building of Legacy with no bullshit. Like, you're not going to get Chalice and Avoided. You're not going to get Ragavand. Uh, you're not going to get Tendrils of Agonied or Show and Tell. Uh, there's just—there's no arrow. Like, there's a lot of really tight decision-making and uh, deck-building stuff for— there are certainly decks that are trying to cheese you like Bogles and whatever, but then there's depth of decision making and deck building, like how many edicts do you want to play or whatever. Like Popper just unlocks a lot of that old legacy feeling, like you said, for sure. All right. Um, why don't we use that as our transition point into the actual episode and talk about current legacy? Um, so a lot of people right now are really focused on Blue Red Delver in various ways, bands, yada, 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 yada. We're going to skip all that and we're going to focus on a different card tonight. Um, while, you know, cards like Ragavan and Days and maybe Merc-type Regent are getting a lot of the press right now, we wanted to take some time to talk about our Lord and Savior, Prismatic Ending. 
which has really changed Legacy in a lot of ways that may or may not be obvious to all of you. Yeah, one mana permanent suck now, Phil. Can we end the episode? I mean, yeah, but I feel like we should give the listeners like a little bit more. So why don't we start breaking it down? Yeah, two mana permanents also suck now. <laughs> and um, what about three mana permanents? Uh, they're not safe either. Shit. Um, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, le- I I can also say at the Legacy Pit Open, I my opponent in the Bant Mirror cast Shifting Ceratops, and I said okay. Then Prismatic Ending did. That is oh, awesome. Baby. That is yep. so great. That is yep. disgusting. Yeah. So uh, Prismatic Ending, serious magic card. Uh, it kind of, I don't want to say it snuck into Modern Horizons two because people clearly saw it and were like, this is really good. But at the same time, it definitely went. Far, too far under the radar for how good it actually is i i think that a lot of people saw it as like swords to plowshares five and six at first at least in legacy it, in modern i think the heat was on it pretty early because they didn't have a card like this like path to exile is not even close this is like clearly the best thing to do in modern with that slot but in legacy it was like yeah uh, sometimes decks play a council's judgment or a path to exile in the sideboard this will take that slot but we really didn't understand how fucked up it was really going to be and how like list it it was it did like the classic thing of like there was one or two in lists like obviously right off the bat and then there were three and now there's four just all across the board like every white decks just like four plow four ending what are my other 52 cards and and then the other decks start changing to become white to play prismatic ending we'll get to that a little more later but yeah uh, Bryant already mentioned good. He already said the Epic Storm in his uh, magic updates is like, yeah, uh, Orm's Chan and Prismatic Ending. Yeah. <laughs> so Just can we rewind a little bit and spell. go back to preview season? So I am in a chat with some uh, blue mages. And when uh, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms came out, Portable Hole was previewed actually before uh, Prismatic Ending was. It was just like the card that was previewed with the set announcement. And people are like, oh, wow, this portable Hulk card's like really good. Do you think that it's going to replace like Disenchant or the Council's Judgment slot? And these people are like, well, it doesn't really answer true name. I don't know. What about three mana permanence? And they're like, oh, well, I." so there's some back and forth. And people are like, no, I think portable Hulk's just really clean. It's going to be swords five and six and so many matchups, whatever. And then when ending came out, people were like, oh, I don't remember what portable Hulk does like portable hole was actually like a really playable card that just got like shut down before it even had the chance. Uh, and then prismatic ending is obviously great, but I remember those same individuals being like, well, still doesn't answer true name. Who is playing true name nemesis anymore? Uh, so I think there's some of that going on where like the cards that are good against ending just don't see play. So I, I've played with a decent amount of portable hole. Cause I've tried out like various artifact based brews. The cards fine. But there is just such this huge gap in power level and flexibility between Portable Hole and Prismatic Ending that, like, Portable Hole hardly feels playable, even in the artifact synergy decks where, like, you want to be turning on, like, Mox Opals or you can sacrifice it to a Ravager later for some extra value or something. Like, Ending is just so, so incredibly flexible. You know what card lines up poorly against Ending also? It's Portable Hole. (laughs) <laughs> yeah the big thing for about portable hole for me as the mox oval player is 
I'm playing artifacts. Force of Vigor's already occurred that wrecks my life. I don't want them then getting back their collector oof or whatever else, you know, was previously ruining my day. So you want to play it in these strategies that already lose to cards that like you're doubling down on losing, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And that comes up a lot too. Like there's very few feelings worse than like finally drawing a plane so you can portable hole a collector oof. And then your opponent just like destroys the portable hole and you're just like back in the same hell that you just escaped. It's it's rough. Permanently answering things is much better than oblivion ringing something. Yeah, it's just not a real removal spell. It's not. It, it doesn't hang in legacy. Like there was a time we've talked about old legacy a few times now. There was a period of time where white decks just had actual oblivion ring in them because removal wasn't that good. Show and tell was popular. Like it was just a thing that happened. Like sower of temptation was in decks as like a thing to put in off show and tell. Like those cards don't get played anymore, and it's because they're not real answers to anything. They're temporary, and they're going to get broken up, and then you're going to be back where you started. I've registered like three X Oblivion rings in like open and, and like IQ deck lists many times, and now like the idea of even running one Oblivion ring is just like, oh yeah, ooh, uh, yeah, I don't know about that. Brian probably remembers this. There was a time period between like 2010 and 2013 where goblins used to just play three X Ashen Rider on the sideboard to put in playoff show and tell. <laughs> Yeah, there were problems yeah. that needed solving. There, like Oblivion Ring effects can be good in the right context. Like obviously, Skyclave Apparition is an extremely real magic card, um, but that does answer the thing permanently. A a three three illusion token or whatever it is is not a replacement for a row. Like if they do find the terminus, like it, that's just a, a different equation. Um, in Pioneer, uh, Baffling End is a premium removal spell because if you remove with baffling end and then they kill baffling end they get a 3-3 dinosaur instead of whatever you originally took so there there are oblivion rings where they're contextually appropriate but they're not legacy is not the place for just an actual oblivion ring even a pushed one like portable hole and like bryant's led on this section that conversation in that blue player discord it the things you need to answer as a blue player, like sure there are Delvers and Sylvan libraries, but then there's also just Teferi Time Raveler, uh, Clothis. Remember Clothis when that card was unbeatable? We're going to talk about that later too. Thanks for Zmatic ending. But <laughs> at the time where uh, Portable Hole was being spoiled, like Oro, Teferi, Clothis, uh, Felidar Retreat, like those were the sort of things people were doing in the format. And Hole doesn't fix any of that. So, Brian. The cards that people were playing previously, we touched upon, you know, Council's Judgment, Disenchant. Sometimes you would see like a main deck engineered explosives. There's a lot of like weird cards that people played. How do you feel about Prismatic Ending just consolidating all of these into just like one, you should just definitely always play this? As a person who loves Magic the Gathering being a healthy expression of, uh, creativity and intelligence and like all these various things that magic does i think it's kind of uh it, it does hurt those things as someone who's gonna play four of this card and basically every deck i register in for the rest of time <laughs> i fucking love it like like i j was just talking about portable hole not answering certain important things like you 
you get that with the abrupt decay problem too um when bug was at the height of its powers uh saltai mid-range uh that was a thing for a while i put a rens run pack master into elves i was on elves at the time and that's just a four drop it's a five five it generates tokens and bug can't kill it they had no outs in their whole deck to a rens run pack master just because it cost four and that's a real cap when you get there uh when I top aided Eternal Weekend with Delver in the Grixis Delver era, I had Tombstalkers in my deck because I like I think Jarvis thought of that and nobody was really doing it, and nobody could answer that thing. Abrupt Decay didn't hit it, Bolt didn't hit it, Tombstalker was just unkillable. And the control decks lose games when their answers don't line up. Like pre ending in even in the miracle days, uh after top. When they had top, they could answer everything all the time. But the post-top miracle days, it's like, I can beat Delver. I just need to have the tools. Uh, if I draw Council's Judgment in my opening hand, I'm going to take nine from this thing before I can even cast it. Then it just gets dazed. But if I draw Plow in my opener, which buys time until I can Council's Judgment cleanly on turn four at a high life total, like when your answer is lined up right, you, you could always win. But they frequently didn't. And now they just do like whatever it is, whatever it is on curve, it's gone. And as a blue player, I'm in love with that. I think it also does really neat things to your sideboards as well, because it used to be that these blue sideboards needed to pack things to beat specific decks. And if you built your deck right for the weekend by bringing the right sideboard cards, like you, you had a great leg up on people. And now you're kind of pre-boarded for a lot of decks. So, you know, you're packing four Swords of Plowshares, four Prismatic Endings in the main deck. You're going to crap on a lot of fair strategies. And so you free up a lot of your sideboard cards where currently you might have had like a Path to Exile and a Wear Terror. Well, a lot of that stuff is just covered by the main deck. And you can really work on bringing a nice spread of things and maybe some more narrow cards than you normally otherwise might play. Yeah, I panicked in the early days of this format, like when Bant Control was still finding its legs. Like The first time I registered for Prismatic Ending, I was like writing my list morning of the tournament on the at the tournament site, and I like panicked because I thought I misbuilt my sideboard. I was like, oh god, I didn't bring a Wilt, I didn't bring a Return to Nature, I didn't bring like uh, a Wear Tear, like Disenchant, like I, I just like forgot all that stuff, what am I even doing? And then it was like, oh shit, yeah, that, that's all just covered. I get to play like two extra meddling mages now, which is a card that normally you don't have room for unless you're really expecting combo decks. There's a perfect example, and I don't think I'll ever forget it. When True Name Nemesis came out, Owen Turtonwald, I believe it was 2014, took second at Grand Prix Washington with a Jeskai Delver deck. And the big innovation Owen made was with True Names in your main deck, you got to open up a bunch of sideboard space because you, you just beat the fair decks now. And Owen just played a full four meddling mage in the board. And that made my life hell for months to come after that. Because Owen found this flaw that a bunch of legacy players didn't notice. Which was just like, now you get to absolutely fix all of your bad combo matchups as the Stoneblade, Delver, Shell, or whatever. And Prismatic Ending's doing the same exact thing right now. I gotta tell you, it's a bounty of riches. I'm sure you've felt it from the other side, but those two to four sideboard slots that used to have to be a disenchant or uh, a generic answer to something like uh, the engineered explosives or like the echoing truth or whatever stupid thing you had to do to answer whatever stupid question people might be asking it's just 
I just have like four slots now that in addition to my three blasts, the fluster storm, now I also have like a canonist, two meddling mages and a containment priest. And I can just like play around with those four hate bear locks piece slots in addition to my, my null rod fluster storm, all that normal stuff that I've been playing all along. And it is nice. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that. But on the same note, uh, Brian mentioned that I'm also running, you know, uh, prismatic ending. I've got to experience a little bit of it where my opponent taps out for Thalia on turn two, and I just have a clean answer on turn two to fight back. And Storm decks have never had that in the past. I'm like, God damn, this feels good. It doesn't feel like magic. Like, it feels wrong. Like, like I shouldn't be allowed to do this. Yeah, I mean, normally you should have to do something ridiculous, like put a pernicious deed into play and then destroy all of my shit with it. Did this happen recently? I, I feel like every once in a while, I will be in this, like, absolutely unlosable position, and then an ant player will just, like, flop a pernicious deed into play, and I'm just like, god damn it, why, why? Ant, this is great. Ant players are uh, wild. What is it? Is, is it 42 AD? Are they the one who, like, plays the absolutely crazy list? Yep, 62 cards. Uh, big fan of that that's nice yeah like the the combo prismatic ending has fundamentally changed even combo matchups like we talked about fair matchups and the true name nemesis effect and just removing the arrow removing the clothes whatever you're also removing the carpet of flowers the defense grid the xantid swarm the wishclaw talisman the ruby medallion like whatever the fuck like it's gone and the virtual card advantage combo decks used to get by you drew your removal spell that's a blank for the game it's just not necessarily true anymore and sometimes the combo players try to lead out some of their artifact mana early where like play around a future uh thalia play around a future deafening silence uh play around discard like you can't just like sit your lines eye diamond and play anymore like it's gone <laughs> get it out like there's a lot there's a lot of counterplay against combo for a a removal spell and it's it's weird yeah and especially like sometimes you have to play it out for mox opal and it's just like now you have to ask yourself is the acceleration worth losing to ending and that's a very real thing but another point i want to drive home here is brian mentioned carpet of flowers xanid swarm all these things uh tony scaponi's cut ruby medallion from ruby storm partially due to ending and a lot of players aren't so props to Tony. Tony's doing the right thing. Tony recognized something about the metagame and made a change. A lot of players aren't. So a part of one of my YouTube membership perks is I, I'll look at your deck list and I'll make suggestions. I've had a few ant players message me and they're like, Hey, what do you think of this sideboard? And I ask why is Xanid Swarm still in there? And they go, Well, it's always been in there. That is not an answer. Like, why is Xanadsworm in your sideboard? And people just don't have answers. Like, they don't know why anymore. They're so used to these heuristics where they haven't re-examined anything since Modern Horizons 2. And now would be a great time to step back and definitely do that. Yeah, and you have to adjust your play patterns, too. Like, I'm doing the whole donation deck list thing. I'm on a different deck every week. I don't know the ins and outs of playing all these decks. So there, there'll be a couple of times where, like, I've played out a Lotus Petal. And I'm like, okay, if I play out this Lotus Petal, like, I can hold up this Brainstorm in case things go really south. And then my prismatic ending, or my opponent casts prismatic ending on this lotus petal, and I'm just like, oh, that does really weird things to the rest of my hand. Maybe this wasn't actually correct to do. Yeah, it, it's crazy that no permanent is safe, uh, including enchantments. Like, we talked about Carpet of Flowers. Uh, like, enchantments used to be indestructible in game one situations most of the time. 
Like there might have been, uh, like Brian mentioned, like one engineered explosives in the main deck of a miracles deck or whatever, or like one council's judgment. But for the most part, Sylvan Library was in play once it was in play. It's just like it's like you're playing plane chase, and this is now the state of the game permanently. And remember pre-Modern Horizons 2? Sylvan Library was like a two to four of, depending on how deep down the Anurag scale you are. Like Anurag was playing like four of that card in his control decks because it just beat the blue mirrors and it couldn't be answered and you just always wanted it early. Uh, I've mentioned Clothis already. Um, Like that card was unremovable. Like you could feel completely in control of a game and then it's just like, oh, here's Clothis. I'm at 18. I'm dead in nine turns. That's it. And not an enchantment, but Planeswalkers as well. Like Teferi, three mana Teferi used to be a complete banger in control matchups. And there used to be some really interesting counterplay to like, do I minus to cash in my card right now, even though there's not a good target? Do I plus and have loyalty saved up for later? Now you just, if you're even playing the card, which I can't recommend, and I love the card, uh, I think it's, it, it's obviously an insanely powerful card. It's been banned in multiple formats. People still complain about it now. Uh, but that card is just gone. Like you resolve it, and okay, prismatic ending, it's gone. I hope you minus, t- or else you're you're just down that card, and uh, that's just a completely different world that we're living in right now. I think current legacy decks, like at least our very top tier decks, are just so generically good against everything right now. Like there, there is a lot of objective power, a lot of uh flexibility in some of the top tier decks like blue red delver air quotes to cover everything that is like built basically like it uh the same is true of the bant decks or you know the miracles decks whatever you want to be calling them right now it's funny i know someone that recently uh decided to try playing magic again they've been on hiatus for a little bit and they're like you know i'm gonna play a magic league and they queued up their deck and round two, they got paired into a Teferi. And their exact words well, were, well, I didn't fucking miss this card. And in my mind, I'm like, that is the least of your problems right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> like yeah, I guess they dodged Ragavan in round one. <laughs> They're still mad about Teferi. Yeah. So it's just funny how that scales. Uh, I know some people out there just hate every card from the last few years, but those cards are here to stay. And it's just best to think about how to navigate through them now. I had this adorable YouTube comment the other day where I think, like, someone had, like, stumbled upon my videos for the first time, and this was their first time watching Legacy for a while. And it was one of those comments where they were like, holy shit, I just realized that Ragavan is like a Deathrite Shaman that hits harder and draws a card. This is fucked up. (laughs) It's just like, oh, man. Uh, (laughs) Welcome to Legacy right now. (laughs) One of my favorite interactions I've had in the last several years, uh, I think I told this story when it was new, but I'm going to repeat it for our new viewers. Uh, I, when Ren and Six was legal in the format, I just played a local event with just full Ren and Six Rug Delver, and I got paired against uh, Turbo Depths, and I just hard locked them with Ren plus Wasteland on like turn three twice in a row. And after the match, my opponent, who I would guess is late 40s, early 50s, uh, just like this long gray goatee, like clearly like in alt metal head from the 70s and he was like may i see that planeswalker card and he like picked it up and he read it he's like this is a useful card <laughs> and then he handed it back <laughs> i was like yeah you're right <laughs> it sure is buddy uh and he's like i should get a few of those and i said no you shouldn't 
it's not going to be around for long. But I do love those wholesome interactions of people who aren't already mad about everything. I'm sure there's some of these people in both of your lives where you knew them from when you were much younger, and then they come back into magic a decade later, and they're just like, oh, wow, everything's changed. I can't believe Goblins isn't like the best deck anymore. And you're like, yeah, things have definitely power crept. Nothing against Goblins, but like just Goblins from like 2005 to seven was just like hands down the best deck. Nothing was even close, and they haven't played magic since then. So they don't even know about Planeswalkers, for example. So, like, all that happened in that time period. And at the same time, we could also show a Muxus and just blow their fucking minds. Yeah. I drafted with a person like that uh, in Shards of Alara. So Planeswalkers were pretty new, but they hadn't played Magic in a few years. And they just showed up for a Shards of Alara FNM draft. And, like, pack one, pick one. They ripped it open. They're like, hey, what's this? And they flashed me an Elspeth. And I was like, you just put it in your pile. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> yeah, you take that one. Anyway, on the subject of prismatic ending changing enchantments, uh, I've talked about this also, but that's why I switched to Loam uh, in my Bant shell, because my Sylvan Libraries were just getting one for one, which is not something you can afford to spend a turn doing. And the Loam, even if it just draws two cards and you never dredge it, like, boom, it's done its job. It's a two for one. And it's threatening fueling an Uro later. And uh that prismatic ending just gets to sit in their hand while you're making your land drops. And you, you got to make those sort of fundamental adjustments if you want to stay relevant with your your deck from six months ago. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you ended up kind of going off that plan, right? I, I thought I saw something somewhere where you were like very unhappy with how long your rounds were taking. Loam was part of the solution to that problem. I wasn't on Loam yet. Loam with Field of the Dead was my solution to speed up the round clock because Field of the Dead is actually just inevitable. Hit your land drops, you're going to win. Though I did just play a tournament this past weekend where even with the the Loam package and Field of the Dead, my local meta just loves fair blue decks. It might be because I hang out with them and like they consume my content and I... I'm good for like one 75 card mirror match every time I show up to a local because I can... I can only be flattered by it, but it's also like, ah, here's this. Maybe I should stop doing content, but (laughs) not actually. But uh, there's a lot of slow blue. There's a lot of just the field of the dead was in the bottom 15 cards of the deck, didn't show up in time. And now we're in turns or whatever. And that that is really tiresome. Like you don't get a lunch break. I've brought my EDH decks to the past four or five legacy tournaments. Didn't even get a chance to take them out of the backpack because there's just no time between rounds. And that, I do think that is a problem with Bant, but the Loam is close a step to solving that problem. It is not the problem itself. So I played in that, uh, I'm sorry, Legacy 2K that I told you about where I took second place. My round one, they were playing your deck, Brian. Uh, and I knew because they started off by fetching for Triumph, and I just like buckled in. I was like, all right, we're dealing with this shit. Uh, and then post-board, they had Deafening Silence, Collector Oof, and Aethers were in Canonist, and I was just like, Brian is such an asshole. Like, why would he do this to me? I didn't do that. That was the, the Bryant Cook effect on the local meta. <laughs> Fair enough. I don't think I played all those cards together, though maybe I did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, there was one version in between when I released my... I trophied with Straight Bant. Though, to add to the point of this episode, 
It was straight Bant, but I still played the Triome so I could get up to four colors for Prismatic Ending. Like, I didn't have the Volk or any red cards on the board, but I did have the Triome still on the deck. And both as, like, something synergistic with Loam, a different land name for Field, and the, the fourth pip for Prismatic Ending. So that was a conscious choice there. But there was one league in between where I think I just, like, YOLO'd my sideboard. I just, like, forgot Hydroblast exists and, like, wasn't really thinking, and I might have put a two Collector Oops in the sideboard. They might have been on that one, which uh, wasn't validated before it was released. With my release schedule, I released, like, the third in the series before the second, and but whatever. Yeah, that might have been me. <laughs> well, did you beat them? I did not. I lost that round and then didn't lose again until the finals. All right, that's the perfect situation. Like, my disciple got to collect their pound of flesh, and then you did well anyway. So, Phil, there's a card uh, that, you know, historically in Legacy has been, like, pretty backbreaking in game ones. That card is Aether Vile. How has Prismatic Ending uh, sort of impacted that card? So, it's it's not just Aether Vile. It's any card that's like Aether Vile. So, if your deck is built around some one-mana permanent, uh, like, say, Aether Vile or Goblin Lackey or some other thing, you know, a didgeridoo. first scroll, even. A, a didgeridoo, yes, that's a great example. I will be recording with Minotaurs probably tomorrow. Anyway, if you're playing with one of these cards and you're keeping a hand based solely on the strength of this card, it's just not nearly as safe as it used to be to do so. It used to be like, all right, you play a turn one Goblin Lackey, you're you're gambling on whether or not your opponent has one of their four Lightning Bolts or one of their four Swords to Plowshares. And now, against most of these decks, they have doubled the amount of chances of having an answer to your thing in the opener. And for things like Aether Vial or like Carpet of Flowers that we talked about just a minute ago, these things that used to sit in play all game and just be safe if they resolved aren't safe anymore. And I've been finding it harder to just have a persistent vial to set up like Recruiter Flickerous Chains and a lot of the shenanigans that I'm used to just doing unchecked in game ones. Yeah, that's why Yorian, the Yorian builds of D&T have really leaned into just having more good cards because you don't get Aether Vial on turn one in this format anyway. The, uh, the main argument that I've seen when I'm you know, perusing the internet and comment sections and stuff is like, 80 cards are stupid. That's uh, dilutes your turn one Aether Vials. And it's like, well, you don't get those anyway. The prismatic endings everywhere. Just play good cards. The Yorian engine is insane in the late game. And the game makes... That deck makes the game take so long that a turn four Aether Vial, once you've worked through the prismatic endings, will still get up to five. And it's just... I think that's a really smart adaptation that we've seen as well. Yeah, also... I am not looking forward to playing like a Yorian Taxes deck in paper. That's something that I have never done. And like the normal DNT rounds are long, and like Yorian DNT just takes like one more butt wiggle into the seat to settle in for a longer game. Yep. And uh I don't I don't know how I'm gonna feel about that. I watched a paper match, you know recently it was at my local where the person started off with like i'd like to reveal my pokemon and they reveal yorian and i'm watching their match and it's against moon stompy and it's like pretty back and forth but the dnt player had the turn one vial and you know like the moon stompy opponent has fury and it looks like it's back and forth but all of a sudden that vial ticked up to five 
the DT player still had two creatures in play versus a goblin token, all of a sudden that Yurian flickers recruiter and then the uh, Skyclave apparition and the game was just completely over. Uh, so there is this just like, hey, you have to do your thing before I get to do my combo or else you just lose the game because I'll value for I'll value you for the rest of this match. So I, I do think that's kind of nice. And like it looked like it ended the game actually faster to me, but I could be wrong about that. Yeah, my experience is that it takes longer. Like you're not you don't really have those Thalia, Mom, Stoneforge, Mystic Cheese hands. I mean, the deck can still do it. it. They're just not as likely. But when the game is one, it's one fast. When that vial hits five and they're like, end of turn, vial in solitude, exile your shit, wish for Yorian, vial in Yorian, flicker the solitude, your board's gone, and I'm holding up Caracas to pick my Yorian back up, go. Like, you can concede, it's over. <laughs> it, it ends very quickly when it's time to yeah. end. When it wins, the wins are decisive. And then there's other times where you're like, looking to draw one very specific thing and it's like well okay my deck doesn't get to do that as often as like traditional death and taxes does like okay right uh the first one of the first legacy tournaments back in paper locally uh david lance was there who is a known dnt aficionado and his deck is all foil beautiful and he i don't know if it's triple sleeve or, or if it's in perfect hearts but it's like big for a magic deck and it's also a yorian deck and he was paired against Alec Bistecki in the first round, and he offered his deck to cut it. And Alex immediately just like yelled into the sky, <laughs> like he he reached for the deck and was like, "No, I hate these already. Can we ban them now?" <laughs> it was his first paper match of Magic in a year and a half, and he had to shuffle somebody's triple sleeved Yorian deck. So I I, I didn't it. remember this for our last episode, but it's coming back to me now. I had one weird interaction at the pit open where I presented my deck and my opponent just looks at me and says, is that really necessary? And I was like, excuse me? And they're like, why is your deck so tall? <laughs> and, I, and in my mind, I, I, like, I was just like, the fuck is your problem? Like, I'm using hard perfects. It's not that out of the norm now. A lot of people use them. Just cut my deck and shut up. Like, I don't know. The, the only time I've thought a comment like that is uh, one time at a local legacy event, this... Uh, my friend Max, actually the person who submitted the Splinter Twin deck I 5 would with today, he came he came like out of the play area into like the lobby area and he was like, you know those big sleeves that cards come in when you buy them in the mail sometimes? And I was like, top loaders? Yeah. And he's like, somebody's deck is in them right now. <laughs> and I was like, no fucking way. And there was in fact somebody playing high tide of all things with a oh deck in top loaders. And that deck shuffles a lot. That was not a good time. Uh, I think that if there was a real judge at that event, they would have had uh, some sort of conversation with that person. So one of our listeners can correct me, but I remember reading the source and seeing photos of this, but I guess it was like fairly popular in Germany around like 2010 to 2012, where that was like a semi-regular thing. And me, like, I was just like, I don't believe you. But then enough people were like, no, that's like fairly normal here. And I was like, okay, I'll buy into this. And now it's in my head that German players love playing in top loaders, but it was probably just three people fucking with me on the source. <laughs> yeah, we we need a confirmation of that immediately. Uh, German listeners. Julian? Uh, Julian? Yeah, Julian, uh, Heinz, if you're out there, like uh, somebody answer this question. Oh, I, I forgot. There, I have one other deck in a top loader story. Uh, there was a pauper tournament 
no, no, it was modern. I'll give them some credit. It was modern. And round one, I was adjacent to this table. The person sits down and their deck's just in top loaders. And their opponent made the appropriate reaction of like, uh, what? Okay. And the guy was like, trust me, it'll make sense soon enough. And it's like, okay. Turns out he was playing an all foil burn deck. And the foils like weren't even nice. They were like premium deck series burn foils. <laughs> like, and so they needed the top loaders yeah, they, to make the cards play. Yeah, <laughs> they needed to triple sleeve in top loaders for the uh and, and it wasn't for for curling. It was like literally this person was like, This is my pride and joy. This is an all foil modern deck. Like it needs to be protected. And it was just one of those matters of perspective things like I, I I just I double sleeve, like not even hard, just like double sleeve my black lotus. I think you can be okay with your like from the vault chain lightning or whatever. Wow, from the vault shame. Getting getting back to uh prismatic ending. Um beating the dead horse here, because we've said this a lot on the podcast, but your chalice of the void hands are not as good as they used to be. That that card just doesn't win games of magic like it used to. And the same is true of most other lock pieces as well. Prismatic Ending just covers those so much. Like, yeah, okay, your choke does some damage versus a blue deck, but they have outs to that sort of thing now. Oh, Phil, I uh, read something on Twitter this week that I think that you will really, really enjoy. So not to go too far down the band discourse here, but people, or at least one individual, is saying that, well, we need Chalice of the Void decks to keep the Regvan decks in check. So why don't we just ban everything that's making the Chalice of the Void decks ban or bad? So Force of Vigor, Prismatic Ending, and Force of Negation were their suggestions to keep Ragavan in the format. Oh, How do you boy. feel about this, Phil? Does this sound like a reasonable plan to you? How many foil Ragavans does this person own? <laughs> I need to know what the conflict of interest is that this preposterous idea would be proposed. Also, are we going to pretend like Brazen Borrower wasn't the starting point of like Chalice of the Void just like being not the not the stalwart of the format that it used to be? Have we forgotten like, about Abrupt Decay also? Yeah. Like, <laughs> that card's been on the downswing. That card was insanely bullshit for a while until they started printing powerful removal to keep up with the powerful threats. And this lock piece, which is a thing that they don't even design magic cards to do anymore. Like that card was a mistake when it was printed. And it's, it, I think it remains a pretty significant design mistake. Like, I, I don't mind if Chalice of the Void gets worse over time. That's one that I think the Watson design team would agree is okay to fade into the blackness of time. Yeah, like Tangle Wire had its day in the sun, right? And now just every once in a while, like... A nostalgic deck list pops up that like goes and uses it well the same may be more and more true uh with like something like chalice of the void over the next five years i had this thought when brian was talking about carpet uh and enchantments being essentially indestructible and it's how artifacts are just like casually destroyed it feels like like there's so many effects that just like will blow up an aether vial or a batter skull like a braid or colgan's command there's no like good playable cards that just have tacked on enchantment removal and i'm talking about specific enchantments not like removes a permanent or whatever but just like oh also target player destroys an enchantment or whatever like cards like that just don't exist so i thought that was pretty uh i i it crossed my mind at the time i thought it was interesting but i th really do think a braid was like the starting point of chalice not being good anymore uh, Dromoka's command saw some amount of modern and like touched in some legacy decks uh, which is 
uh, it it's in the Coligon's command cycle and it does hit enchantments, but uh, just the color support the core like obviously Grixis is better than like uh, Naya or whatever if you're looking for a command to cast. I, I agree that there's not a lot of just incidental enchantment hate the way that there is artifact hate. I mean, wear tear uh, is kind of like attacking enchantment hate onto shatter. Or attacking Shatter onto Demystify. I don't know. Like, <laughs> cards are getting better at doing two things in general. Yeah, and I think part of that is shifting design philosophy. And, you know, a lot of the tinfoil hat people say, like, oh, it's so that best of one can work better. No, it, it's just reducing feel-bads, which when you're managing a standard and draft format, you don't want people to feel bad. You want them to have a good time, win or lose, and then buy more packs. Yeah. I am all about these modal cards that do multiple things or have multiple uses. Like in like the Return to Ravnica block, for example, there were a whole bunch of charms that had a billion different modes, all of which were kind of cool. And like, I love the designs of those sorts of cards. Yeah, the classic Rich Shea SCG Open Finals with the Mirror Charm in his deck. That's a thing that happened. So the next uh, point here is like, there's an upside to playing creatures that dodge Prismatic Ending. So Murktide Regent, True Name Nemesis... You know, there's a bunch of them. If you want to get really spicy, there's things like Thrun the Last Troll. Not that I actually recommend playing that card, but... Oh, I got beaten by one of those a couple days ago. It was bullshit. <laughs> hey, There was uh, nothing I could do. I want to go on a serious Bant rant right now. Um, because you mentioned Thrun, I have gone so deep into the hole looking for a way to just bust open these blue mirrors and... Field of the Dead, I think, is the best answer that uh, Zach Allen uh, gets the credit for first suggesting that, and then I found a good home for it. But I went deep on, like, how do I bust open these blue control mirrors and Thrun the Last Troll? Uh, that's the, the the meatiest of them all, but it's smaller than Uro. It doesn't race Uro. It doesn't block Uro. Not effectively, like... Your opponent just rams their Uro into your Thrun. You pay two mana to let them draw a card and gain three life every turn. The, like, Carnage Tyrant trades with Uro. Uh, Gaia's Revenge, Swords to Plowshares. Uh, there's just a lot, there are a lot of Terra Stomper, Swords to Plowshares. Like, I, I did a deep scryfall search of, you know, like, Hexproof, Protection from Blue, Can't Be Countered. All of these cards are just worse than Uro on rate, even with all their extra words. Uh, shifting Ceratops, Swords of Plowshares, it's gone. Like, there is nothing, there's not a creature that can bust open the blue mirrors as long as Uro is a core of any of those decks, including Thrun the Last Troll. I also had an opponent cast that card against me in a Bant Mirror, and I was just like, okay, I took 12 from it, then found an Uro, gained all 12 of it back, and that thing was eventually just on blocking duty until it got, like, tucked away by a terminus or eaten by a dress down like i forget how i removed it but it was eventually just gone and like okay this was vaguely scary for three turns but decks full of answers like those cards are not good uh band players please don't be tempted by any of those shitters so the point that i want to make here is there's some interesting tension when when building decks so like murktide true name all this stuff you can go larger so felidar retreat was a card we mentioned in the beginning of the podcast Going larger than ending is also a thing. It's very similar to the snow control metagame where everybody was running three to four copies of Abrupt Decay. So people were like, okay, well, why don't we start looking at cards that cost four mana? And then Felidar Retreat just crushed. 
Well, Brian's already gone to that next level. He's playing the mid-range war to reference one of our old podcast episodes. But Brian is like, okay, I'm going to play that fourth color that I can splash for. That way I can answer four drops. You just need to go bigger than ending in a lot of these slower control matchups that Brian's trying to win. If you're looking at the Bantmere, just going bigger can work. Brian seems to have found a really good answer with Field of the Dead. It is going bigger despite costing nothing. But that's the sort of idea. And I think it's good deck building. Like I've seen some people going saying Murktide needs to be banned. It's too good. It dodges prismatic ending. No, that is interesting design. Like why does everything need to be cleanly answered by prismatic ending? There should be some tension. Like Gurmag Angler shouldn't be banned either. Not that people play Angler anymore, but come on. You're better than that. There was a great uh, Twitter meme going around this week. Um, uh... I believe it was Mad Vuk who started it. He was like, I don't even win many games with Stitcher Supplier. I win with Hogak or something. And then like people started retweeting like, uh, I don't win games with Ragavan. I, I think the original joke was the people saying, I don't win games with Ragavan. I win them with Murktide Regent. And then Matt was like, I don't win with Stitcher Supplier. I win with Hogak. And then people are like uh, retweeting like, I don't win with Veil of Summer. I win with Tendrils. And it just... Uh, that was a pretty good meme that was circulating, and I think that applies here. Uh, speaking of Ragavan, the, there's kind of a true name nemesis renaissance now in blue decks. Uh, I've lost to a number of true name nemeses lately because Prismatic Ending is my removal of choice. I, I'm down to one Terminus in my deck, and it's in the sideboard. I have the two Dress Downs main, but I need to like dress down the true name and then remove it, which is still more than we had in that, like, Owen Turtonwald, like, 2015 era. Like, there there are main deck outs to this thing. But you have to find them. I mean, Uro sort of races it. But True Name Nemesis, I've died in just three-point chunks when that thing resolves. And Dashed Ragavan, also. Uh, getting around the Sorcerer's Speed removal. I've definitely just been picked apart by Ragavan with two or three Prismatic Endings in hand. Like, there's both card choices and play pattern choices uh, that really reward people who are on the prismatic ending level right now murktide regent is one of the easiest cards to win a game with i've ever played i played a blue red delver league yesterday and it just felt like cheating that card is so awesome it is a giant idiot for sure i'm not a good delver player like let's be real i don't have the reps in with that deck and like I knew I was messing up sideboarding and I knew I was making decisions wrong and it just it just didn't matter. Just like first Murktide Regent hits them for most of their life total. Then you play the second one and grow the first one and the game is just over. Not to uh, crap on one of Brian's favorite decks here, but also if all of your cards are bad, the prismatic endings aren't going to seem as backbreaking. And I'm talking about elves here. Not that elves is full of terrible cards or whatever, but no unique elf is so important that the rest of the deck can't function. And elves gets to overwhelm a lot of these white decks or well, prismatic ending swords decks. You are trading one for one and elves is just really good at avoiding the one for one with things like wirewood symbiote, etc., where eventually they're going to overwhelm you. The, the elf deck has always been better at drawing cards than every blue deck. Like, there, I don't think there's a fair deck that draws more cards than elves ever, in in Legacy's history. Uh, well, it like ignoring Wheel of Fortunes, like the the Echo of Eons and Time Spiral shit. Even the accumulated knowledge decks, they draw fewer cards over a prolonged game than elves does. Like with the between the glimpse, the symbiote, uh, 
elvish visionary combo like that you can't beat elves one for one even in the top miracles days when they could just cast terminus during your combat step at any point you could never combo you could never overcommit. if you just had like cavern of souls wirewood symbiote and you could pick up your things and uh make make them answer each threat one for one don't play into a terminus you could beat miracles pretty regularly and that is what Bryant just said now like Elves is in a really good position that uh, here are my five one ones. You can remove the Allosaurus Shepherd so I don't overrun you next turn, but then I'm going to combo with the Heritage Druid. You can remove the Heritage Druid so I can't combo, but then I'll overrun you with the Allosaurus Shepherd. Or if you focus on either of these things, I'll just sit here drawing cards with Elvish Visionary. And it's just that is a, a really good way to attack these control decks right now because they're not built to X for one. There's not a lot of sweepers in the format right now. Elves is also a deck that doesn't really care about Ragavan, right? Like, they can easily trade with that if they want to. And, like, do they even want to? Or are your creatures just more valuable than, like, the Lotus Petal and a random card that your opponent is getting? Um, there was a Twitter post. I, f- I forget who, who posted it. It's like, yeah, I just let the Ragavan hit me two or three times and then my opponent dies. Yeah, uh, Newton and Julian were both talking about that, where it's like, I could trade with Ragavan, I just don't care. And that's one way to play around Ragavan. Uh, I was I played a league recently where I had Ragavan against lands, and my Ragavan connected, and it took their exploration. It's like I had this brief moment where I was like, "Oh, sick! I get an exploration." But then it's like, "No, it it doesn't matter. It doesn't even do anything. I'd rather have a treasure token." And just when your engine is not useful to your opponent, that is a good place to be in a Ragavan meta because then it's just a two one. Yeah the 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 worse your deck is the less you probably care about Ragavan. Like, when you're playing this, like, nice, optimized cantrip deck, Ragavan is terrifying. And then when you're playing, like, a deck full of, like, tribal shitters, you're like, yeah, whatever, monkey. Yeah, go ahead, cast that Thalia. I dare you. Um, So something we haven't touched on here is if a lot of these control decks are playing more one-for-ones and fewer sweepers, then the stock of other cards that create multiple bodies does go up. And so we've seen a lot of Urza's Saga decks popping up for various reasons because the card is just objectively powerful, but it's also something that can help you just like overrun a pile of prismatic endings and swords to plowshares. And uh, the deck that got third place at the Legacy Pit, for example, um, was the like Blue Red Delver deck that was also playing Urza's Saga. Um, And that's the exact version that I recorded with yesterday. Yeah, it's tough when you have a prismatic ending and you know Retrofitter Foundry is imminent, but you're currently taking four from a creature. And it it, it is easy to overpower this one-for-one removal. Not that Urza Saga needed help. That's part of the reason that the, uh, the Ragavans are all running Meltdown, because it will eventually be a three-for-one. You just have to take some hits in the meantime. Yeah, I re- the league I recorded with Izzet Delver last week, the so- I just copied the list. And it didn't have a meltdown. It had Blazing Volley instead. And just, I, I 3 2 the league, losing to two Urza Saga decks, when just having a single meltdown to Cantrip and Dig 4 would have been fundamentally changing. And yeah, make sure that you can answer Urza Saga with your one-for-one deck in some sort of clean way, because Prismatic Ending and Lightning Bolt are not going to do it. All right, so this kind of ends the, the first section of our show notes here, and uh, we're going to transition into part two and kind of talk about some of the deck-building implications for various decks, either because you're playing Prismatic Ending or maybe you want to do things to sort of play around it. 
So something we've already hit on here a little bit uh, with Bryant talking about like his his storm deck moving into white is that white has become maybe the premium splash color in Legacy. And this has not always been the case. In fact, frequently that color is is black. And we've seen other metagames be dominated by these black splash cards, like, say, Deathrite Shaman or Culligan's Command. And right now, it's pretty rare to queue into, like, a black-based control deck. Yeah, they don't yeah, exist. The, <laughs> yeah, the, the black... Black is in such a weird spot right now that I'm going to tell two anecdotes from my paper tournament last week where what in one of the rounds I got paired against what appeared to be Bug Delver. And in my head, I was like, why is this person on Bug? It doesn't make any sense. And then like plumbing the depths of my legacy knowledge, I was like, oh, he probably has the Witherbloom Apprentice combo jammed into this Bug deck. And he did. And then so I, I was able to navigate that one because it's suspicious. Like black is so bad that your feelers should go up if you see an underground sea or a bayou. Like you should be like, okay, what? How, what's the combo kill? And then in my win and in later that day, which I lost, my opponent was also on bug, and I saw like ice fang Kawadol and some like endurances and stuff, and I just settled in to beat Alurin because it doesn't make sense that anyone would be playing a fair bug deck. And then I ended up losing that match because I spent the first game playing around a Lauren. The second game I played like they were going to green sun zenith me. And it turned out they were just like bug magic cards, just uh, Kawadals. And there might have been Strixes in there. There was a Hall Breacher I saw, a Grist. And it was just literally just no combo, no green sun zenith. These are just the cards I've drawn this game. Here they are. And they're all pretty powerful. And I lost because I was like, there's no way this is just a bug deck and i sideboarded weird i played weird and i got punished for it so it black is just really weird at where him to tarak was a defining card in 2017 like right before war of the spark when grix's control was the cat's pajamas uh him him was just like everywhere you needed a plan for him and that's just not the case right now I had it told to me recently that black is essentially the Batman of magic, where it is the second best at everything, but it's not particularly great at anything anymore. And where it used to be second best at everything, the things that are better now are so much better that there's no reason to play black. And I was like, that's an interesting perspective. I don't know how true it is. Like, I'm not saying they're right or wrong, but it's just like something to think about. And I thought it was just like kind of a cool antidote. I don't have data to back this up, but. Anyone who maintains a legacy magic collection, like if you just have a box or binder of legacy playables, it, it, flip through your gold cards. You'll find that the majority of them are black. Like one of the two or three colors is black on the most of the legacy role player gold cards throughout history. Uh, that's just something I noticed flipping through my binder a couple years ago. And I was like, yeah, black really is just kind of the Batman, like you just said, second best at everything. But when you're red anyway, Colagon's Command is a fucking banger. When you're uh, white anyway, Zealous Persecution has a role. Uh, when you're green anyway, Abrupt Decay is a premier removal spell. Like, black is just all over the place in those gold cards throughout history. Oh, absolutely. Because so many of them have, like, removal effects stapled on them in one way or another. Yep, removal and discard are just tacked on to otherwise reasonable effects. 
one interesting thing about combo decks right now is they're becoming less black. And I think that has a lot to do with how magic cards are printed nowadays. The combo color in magic probably a decade ago at this point, maybe Brian can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it became red. And ever since then, we've seen Rite of Flame, Seething Song, Desperate Ritual, Pyrotic Ritual. And now all of a sudden we have Galvanic Relay, you know, so red, and it's why we have Ruby Storm, right? Well, now with Modern Horizons 2, green is also the storm color. So decks like Ant that have had their identity tied to being blue-black for the better part of 15 years are all of a sudden being forced to splash for a card that costs triple green, or they're also trying to play Galvanic Relay and they're stretching their mana base. So even if you wanted to stay black anymore, the storm combo decks at least, the cards that they're printing don't allow you to stay mono black. So you're getting this weird tension in your deck, so you might as well splash for all the extra colors. I know that these aren't prismatic ending, but if you're already splashing for two, why not splash for three, right? Like, you're you're already there. You might as well play one of the best removal spells ever printed. Yeah, the holdouts, the like the major non-replaceable black holdout is Dark Ritual left in the format. Anything else black is doing can be done with other cards, and... Uh, like you said, there are more red rituals at this point than there are black ones, but Dark Ritual is still just better than all of those, and Doomsday costing exactly what Dark Ritual produces will always be present in the format as long as we still have Thassa's Oracle to get with it. But yeah, uh, black is just like Abrupt Decay sucks. Play Prismatic Ending. What do you want? Like Assassin's Trophy? Get rid of it. Play uh, play Swords to Plowshares. Like, the I, we haven't talked about that at all. Like the the backup net uh, to prismatic ending is swords to plowshares, which was always the best removal spell in the format. So if we're pointing our endings at Ragavans and D- Dragon Rage channelers, here comes the Merktide Regent, which we've talked about being the great answer to prismatic ending. Like plow that, it's gone. We still have that in the the holster. So it, it's kind of crazy to think of plow as the backup removal spell for special occasions rather than like the go-to and then we have like the council's judgment later it, it's just a complete fundamental shift even for the decks that were already white so both of you just kind of said the same thing separately and that's that prismatic ending is one of the best removal spells ever printed just full stop we haven't like come out and said that in the rest of the episode but like one of the reasons that we're having this conversation right now is because of how format defining and format changing this card has been. It's had such huge impacts on so many different archetypes. And now like, you know, there it is. This card is that good. This isn't like the supplemental card of a set that is a throw in or anything. This is format defining, but maybe more quietly so because of how explicitly good the cards that slot into blue red Delver are. Yeah, I've been saying some flavor of this for the past two episodes where if Ragavan leaves the format and we don't need to worry about Dash anymore, I think that we're going to start seeing lists with like four ending, two or three plow rather than the other direction and four plow first. I think we're going to see four ending first and plow will be the supplementary removal spell for white decks after that. So there's also ways to combat that. And I'd just like to remind people. So Brian, you're talking about how sorcery speed removal hurts you against Dash. Well, people aren't playing Infect because they're afraid of this Plague Engineer that's not seeing play anyway. Everything's a Phyrexian. No one cares. Activate your Ink Moth Nexus and jam it down Brian's throat. Like, there are things that you can do to fight back. And people just aren't doing them because they're afraid of cards that aren't seeing play. Like, if you want to play him to Torok, 
Myself and Alex McKinley are the only people running for Veil of Summer. Go out there and cast your hymns. Like, there's stuff that you can do. You just have to go out and do it. Part of the reason why that landfall deck works is so many of the removal spells are these sorcery speed things. Like, do you think you're safe against a 0-1 creature? Yeah, probably. Bam, 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 you died. Oh, you did not actually have that turn to ponder. Yeah, I think that the uh, go ram your cards argument is uh, focusing. uh, I I don't know if reductive is the right term or just missing the context, but like I've played against infect locally. There was a, a local infect bro who I got paired against three times across four tournaments and obliterated him with endurance like go ahead ram your ink moth nexus in i'll block it with endurance you spend all your pump spells just keeping your shit alive then i'll untap in prismatic ending what's left and i still have swords to plowshares shark typhoons in the mix like there and him to truck go ahead cast it i'll randomly discard uro it's coming back like uh, those cards are just contextually bad and it's not just because of prismatic ending like there's other stuff going on uh, modern horizons was a, a beater on a lot of different directions and and just the fire design of the last few years. That's fair. I'm just saying that I don't think that those strategies are as bad as people make them out to be. Like, obviously, they haven't aged as well as people would hope, but I think a lot of that is exaggerated a little. That was my main point. I could also be wrong. I will definitely I will definitely say that uh, not not to like harp on your specific examples, but since I beat up that infect guy, over the past couple months, I've cut all the Ice Fang Koalas from my deck, which was a huge beating for Infect. So that meta shifted a little. Uh, when I do get paired against a Hymn to I played against one today, an uh, opponent on just actual factual Jund. Uh, they cast Hymn to and I was like, well, shit, here goes two of my cards. Like, not everyone has a row in their deck. So you can still cast these cards. It's just in the grand context. Um, just... Expressive iteration is like an inside out him to truck. It just gets two cards back after you lose two cards and they're not at random. So it's just tough to line up him to truck against what people are doing in general because every card comes with more cards attached to it these days. Yeah, and we've had that conversation before about how, generally speaking, discard and him to Torok based strategies have gotten worse over time for plenty of factors. The the card draw attached to cards like Uro, the presence of cards like Veil of Summer. Uh, you know the just raw power level of cards increasing so that like one top deck slipping through becomes just you know more and more problematic to deal with you know any that, that ship has sailed yep yep any planeswalker at all so speaking of infect that's on my list of decks that wouldn't normally be playing white but now they are because of prismatic ending i some of these are more real than others but i did a pretty deep uh dig on mtg goldfish printed results i i just searched for prismatic ending among posted lists and in fact playing prismatic ending uh, adding a color they also the list i saw most recently had a single makinda that's the bird that can double your spell or like cast your spell out of the graveyard and a, it, they had a single teferi in the sideboard but that white they had two or three prismatic endings and then one other white card in the main one white card in the sideboard Food Chain is a Bant deck now. They were a Bug and Rug previously. Aloran is four color now. That was previously a Bug deck. Well, okay, that one, that one's a little deceptive because there were two very different, distinct versions. The upside of running the Recruiter of the Guard version is that it's a 
a single recruiter of the guard just instantly wins you the game. Yes. So like th- that was a standalone deck before Prismatic ending. Yeah, and the bug the Aloran world also had Imperial Recruiter decks before that. And then there was the bug that just tried to win with uh Uro, like flickering Uro. So there were a, a few different builds, but the fact that the white one is the only one that's getting published and played currently when it used to sort of bounce around uh, is a sign of the times. And that's a big upgrade. Like you didn't even really need white mana in your Aloran deck. Like you could play bug Aloran with a recruiter of the guard. Uh, Aloran's still going to cast that thing, but actually having committing to white mana and getting that prismatic ending is a big deal. Big change for the deck. While we're on Aloran for a second, when I was at the 2k, somebody uh, was playing Aloran and they weren't on the uh, Yorion build. And they're like, why would I want to play that card to make my deck worse? Which, you know, you're allowed to have that opinion. But I feel like Aluren is one of the few decks that gets to cheese people because they have Aluren. Like, you're a Force of Will Yorion deck. I would just use that to my advantage all the time. Because, like, I'm the idiot that's going to be like, okay, nice death and taxes opponent. Let's try to get you dead. Um, so, like, you also get some free percentage points by not being death and taxes. Which I think is, like, kind of a good thing. And and another reason to play white, right? Yeah, and and the 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 great thing about Aloran is it's the same thing that's great about food chain. Like you're just a a blue green value deck. You're an Uro deck, and then you just can just also win out of nowhere. It's just another thing to consider. You're a little worse at staying alive. Uh, like you have to play these green enchantments instead of more removal spells or more counter spells or whatever else you're going to put in that spot. You don't get like Shark Typhoon or whatever, but you can also end the game on a single turn, which other control decks can't. And you can just board... Some of the builds can just board down to one or two Alorans or cut them completely and just be fair. Or they can board into, this is the plan, I gotta get it done, and just stay alive until it happens. And I think that is a huge power of the Aloran deck. And when you're committing to the possibility that you're going to play fair, Yorion is just one of the best fair cards that there's ever been. I don't know. At the same time, though, like a Sararak also just being a one card kill with Aluren does give you some reason to want to remain in bug. But like prismatic ending is a hell of a drug, as you've all probably picked up on at this point. Yeah, I also really don't like Sararak as just a magic card when you don't have Aluren, uh, where oh, recruiter yeah, can it's do unplayable. Stuff. Yeah, it, it's just like a three mana scry one or whatever the fuck it does and then they know exactly what you're doing for the rest of the match but yeah like recruiter still does stuff uro does stuff i guess cavern harpy's always been kind of a blank but you can get some slow you're basically a slow elves draw when you do like a cavern harpy thing so i i do like my alluren cards to actually be cards when i don't have alluren around and so there are other cards that like fit this category as well. Um, I've been seeing more blue white or bant versions of of Omnitel floating around. Um, basically, the the Jeskai Tempo deck, whatever you want to call it, is basically blue red Delver with some extra steps. Um, you just pick up like Prismatic Ending and Source to Plowshares and maybe a couple of white sideboard cards as well. Yep. The the Ragstill and Jeskai Tempo deck, I think it's pretty telling that the only white cards in those decks are these eight removal spells. And historically, having good mana on just like a, a two-color Tempo deck is worth a lot. Um, 
and Delver is frequently three colors anyway, but just if prismatic ending didn't exist, would these decks be white just for plow? Or is it the robustness of the removal suite? If there wasn't something in that slot that could remove Chalice of the Void or remove Thalia, Guardian of Draven, or whatever, remove Aether Vial, like all the things we've talked about, would they still be white or would everyone just be blue-red? And that's an unanswerable question, but I am not convinced that these decks would go white just for plow. Um, But there are a lot of decks that are splashing a, a lot of times a fourth color to make these prismatic endings even better. So... I have seen an odd number of plateaus in play recently, for example, just so like a player can go and just get that last color for prismatic ending. Um, and I've been seeing a couple of, I, I guess you could call them like miracles decks that have gone a little bit heavier into the expre- expressive iteration sort of setup. Uh, and they go really heavy with various dual lands so that they can make that mana work and just make their prismatic endings as strong and as flexible as possible. Yeah, Phil Blockman, our editor, ran a prismatic ending miracles deck at the pit open, and I was just really, really impressed by it. Yeah, I have a, a local friend who has a deck in my donation queue right now that is expressive iteration miracles, where it just it's just just guy with four expressive iterations and obviously prismatic ending. Since you already have three colors, uh, that's a great spell to cast. I don't know if I don't know how Honorak got there with his expressive iteration Bant decks, like the four color plus expressive iteration. Um, but I got there because I I mentioned it already. Like I wanted the fourth color for prismatic ending, and then once I was there anyway, I was like, well, might as well put some pyroblasts in the sideboard and an expressive iteration in the main. And the colors are getting kind of soupy again. So at the pit open, and if you read my tournament report, you already know this, but I got paired against uh, what I didn't know was Dead Gael. My opponent let off with Marsh Flats into Scrubland, Aether Vile. I'm like, okay, likely Esper Vile, you know, you don't really know. Turn two was Flooded Strand, I believe, for Tundra. I'm like, okay, definitely Esper Vile. And then they played Dark Confidant. I'm like, okay, kind of a weird choice for Esper Vile, but still possible. Turn three, Dark Confidant flips Thalia, and I'm like, fuck. And then they go, all right, Vile and Thalia, Archon of Emeria. And that Tundra just completely changed the entire dynamic of that match, because I had a turn two kill, but I chose to respect Force of Will. And Prismatic Ending just got them a, a match win that they might not even have realized at the time. So choose your splash colors yeah, the wisely. Esper Vile... Yeah, the Esper Vile and Dead Guy L spaces have sort of merged because of Prismatic Ending. Vile was on kind of an upswing. It was experiencing a bit of a renaissance. Thanks for that, Phil, by the way. Uh, like, people were doing a lot of that uh, when, like, Culture Complete was new, which was obviously in the same set as Prismatic Ending, but we didn't know yet. We weren't there. And now it's just like, if you're in white, you should have at least three colors, even if it is just, like, a Tundra in your dead guy L deck or an underground sea just find another pip somewhere to juice up those prismatic endings and stoneforge mystic which is not i mean blue stoneforge decks we just talked about dead guy L, we talked about death and taxes but the blue stoneforge mystic decks which are not super popular right now but people still play them they are all jeskai or esper or four color 
Uh, I haven't seen just a clean blue-white Stoneblade list, which was a big appeal of Stoneblade. You could do that. Just blue-white, six or seven basic lands, main deck back to basics. You have a quick clock disruption. You could be a blue deck. You could be an aggro deck. That was like the whole thing. And those decks, when you see them, are all many colors making that prismatic ending happen. And kind of bringing things full circle, like we've talked about how much that prismatic ending does in these various decks. And just to remind you, like because it does so many things, you've consolidated cards, you've opened up sideboard slots, you don't have to run, uh, you know, your council's judgments, your wilts, your return to natures and cards of that nature anymore. And like prismatic ending opens so many doors for you if you are playing that that it's probably worth taking some amount of deck building constraints to get prismatic ending into your deck. Like something like Dead Guy Dale historically has been just black white, period, full stop. But gaining that extra color to make your prismatic endings better is probably worse worth making your mana slightly worse elsewhere. Because then you can run fewer, you know, dedicated sideboard slots for fair matchups and you can focus more on adding you know your inquisitions your surgicals you know whatever it is you actually need to win some of the tougher matchups like say something like a doomsday deck i i do like i early on i when i started this episode saying it sort of constricts the creative space of building magic decks because this thing just does everything you need but i like that point that you just made where it also opens up some creative space of i'm splashing a color anyway Maybe I can get some discard in here, or in my case, maybe I could get some Pyroblast and Expressive Iteration in here. I do really like that sort of space. I don't know if it's good or bad, but we sort of pinched off one pathway and opened up another one, and I think that's pretty cool. I think one of the nice things about it, though, is like you don't have to play four ending. If you're losing to a bunch of Murktide regions because you're playing four endings, you could always play some more copies of Swords to Plowshares. Maybe your list only has six slots and you should be playing three three instead of four and two but it goes back to the if you're losing to four mana cost cards with abrupt decay play an assassin's trophy that same philosophy applies to white cards too so don't just sit there and die to the same creature over and over again if you can change it as good as prismatic ending is and i do recommend playing four uh there are other removal spells that you can play to complement your endings all right do we have any closing thoughts here or was that kind of the the, the little end cap of wisdom. I think we can keep this one short and sweet. Ending about 20 minutes early. Unless you want 20 minutes of bullshit. No, we'll just call this our prismatic ending. But um Alright folks, thanks for listening. Uh, you can listen to us again in uh, two more weeks. See ya!